Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, and thank you for attending this lecture at the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. If you're interested in learning more about us, please feel free to speak to one of our staff at the conclusion of this event. Helen Lamb is from the great state of South Carolina. In 2017, she graduated magna cum laude from Wofford College with a degree in Chinese and history. She's currently studying statecraft and international affairs with a concentration in American foreign policy at the Institute of World Politics. She is interested in the politics of post-communism and focuses much of her writing on the interplay of religion and politics. This paper was submitted for completion of Dr. Mara Kodakiewicz's 2018 spring course on Russian politics. Please join me in welcoming Helen. Thank you all. The Soviet regime's protracted antipathy toward religion produced many strange and sad stories. That of the League of the Militant Godless stands out among them for its relatively long duration. Throughout various phases of Soviet history, during which ideology was often molded and the party often rebranded to fit political purposes, the League remained. Its persistence suggests a non-superficial continuity among the many phases of Soviet history, a lasting and relentless hatred of religion. This is a case study in political culture, bureaucracy, and ultimately spiritual warfare. I wish to outline my rationale for the order of this presentation. Uh, before we get into the details of the League formation, structure, and activities, it is necessary to place them in their proper philosophical, ideological context. None of the Soviet tragedy was a matter of randomness, so we begin with the ideas that animated all of the party's constituent parts. Then we shall plunge into the League itself, and finally review and analyze some of its propaganda. And I hope to bring attention to why exactly, in a contemporary way, this obscure Soviet club might be relevant. So, we all know that the Soviet project is motivated by Marxism. But by what was Marx motivated or inspired? Um, 19th century German philosophy gives us Georg Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel, the originator of the Hegelian theory of the dialectic. In his time, Hegel sets forth that a perpetual process of destruction and rebirth drives the logic of history. An iteration of being, our thesis, is met with an alienation of itself, the antithesis, and then moves on to transcend the source by overcoming it, thus creating a new thing, synthesis. Hegelian reason assumes implicitly that this self-alienation is ultimately self-enriching. It is, as Martin Malia writes in The Soviet Tragedy, both destructive and creative, humiliating and ennobling, enslaving and liberating. Conflict begets process. Progress, excuse me. Ironically, for the purposes of this project in particular, Hegel had intended to put into more secular philosophical terms 
some long-held religious notions in the Western world, that he who loses his soul shall find it, and that redemption only comes through sin, suffering, and privation. And indeed, that the least of us, in the end, shall be exalted. He recast this old Christian parable in a secular light with the master-slave dialectic. The master affirms his selfhood imperfectly and without awareness of his identity by subjugating the slave, but the slave, in laboring for the master, transforms the material world and by his creativity rises to more genuine selfhood. And this is the essence of scientific materialism. It is a scientific explanation for the inner workings of the soul, just as Kant offered his scientific universal maxims as a program of morality. The Enlightenment brought us many uh, interesting gifts, but as Hegel predicted, though perhaps not as he would have wished, this idea would soon come to terms with its own inner contradiction and become something entirely different. And this is where we get to Marx. So Marx grafted his principle of class struggle over that basic Hegelian dialectic. Marx was less interested in the individual soul as he was in the ideal society. The roles of master and slave, presented in Hegel's parable as theoretical individuals, become collected groups divided into haves and have-nots for Marx. In the modern world, these are the bourgeoisie and the proletariat. Once the bourgeois masters are overthrown, the proletariat hence rise to a new level of civilization, one in which technology allows for perfect equality. Marx and his followers hate religion. He famously described it as the opiate of the people. Fundamentally, Marx viewed religion as an expression of material realities and economic injustice. Um, by minimizing religion in this way to a mere source of comfort, Marxists can easily dispense with it in theory, but in reality, religion and the family, which in themselves are deeply connected to each other, they're not so easily cast aside. The scientific materialist view of equality removed from God and equality before God from the picture. Um, instead, a scientific materialist must seek equality by eliminating all distinctions in the present world. These are distinctions between people, between God and man, between the sexes, between good and evil. Religion fundamentally resists such a force because at its core, religion is a matter of tradition, distinction, hierarchy, and propriety, of, of natural law. Family is the immediate proxy for a person's understanding of tradition, distinction, hierarchy, and propriety. And so to the Marxist, religion and family must be destroyed. The Bolsheviks, in their quest for equality, sought to destroy both. Marx theorized that it would happen naturally, and the Bolsheviks took progress um, upon themselves into their own hands. The underlying philosophy, though, which is what I wanted to present to you, and present the, the history of is what legitimated and ultimately necessitated violence while also eliminating the possibility of plurality and culture. Again, conflict begets progress. So now we can jump into the history. Um, 
The Civil War period saw much more militant anti-church activity than the League of the Militant Godless ever conjured on their own. While their attacks, the, the attacks during the, uh, oh, I'm sorry, while the League, the League's attack, attacks on faith were based on anti-faith sentiment in general, the Bolsheviks' main target was specific. It was the Russian Orthodox Church a long-standing, powerful source of identity and culture in Russia. Beginning in 1917, several official anti-religious orders were enacted, among them the prohibition of religious education, the reduction of marriage to a civil institution, and the prohibition of religious figures and institutions in the military. On January 23, 1918, all church property was nationalized. From February 1918 to late 1920, a violent and bloody attack was waged on the clergy, given their supposed, supposed resistance to communism. Um, 1921 to 1923 saw the state-sanctioned arrests and ex executions of more clergy and lady, among them some of the most powerful and influential figures, um, again under the pretext of their opposition to state confiscation of church property. Also during this time, the regime held public openings and desecrations of the reliquaries of Orthodox saints. And it is a central element of their faith that um, the saints' bodies are incorruptible. So in late 1922 and early 1923, the regime shifted strategies by launching a widespread systematic propaganda campaign targeted at um, popular religious belief, not just at the church. Bolshevik leaders, most prominently this guy, uh, Yemelian Yaroslavsky, realized the folly in the expectation that popular religious belief would disappear with the institution itself. In lieu of a propaganda operation, the systematic oppression of the Orthodox Church would, would not suffice. Um, so the Committee on the Execution of the Decree Separating Church and State, better known as the Anti-Religious Committee, was created. And this would be the organization that, all, that oversaw the efforts of the League in its nation stage. And I just want to point out, um, he's Emilian Yaroslavsky, a little bit about the guy. He was uh, an old school Bolshevik um, and was sent, uh, part of the Central Committee all the way through, even surviving the, the 1937 to 1938 um, secret police terror, he sided always with the furthest left faction um, and was an early biographer of, of Lenin, as you can see. So this man, Yaroslavsky, um, understood religion to be a complex cultural phenomenon reflecting both production relations within society and the Russian peasantry's centuries-old isolation and subservience to nature. Ultimately, the victory of the scientific materialist worldview required transformation of rural production relations and the peasantry's relationship to nature and technology. In the meantime, anti-religious propaganda, carefully explaining what the, what religion was and how it harmed believers was necessary. The arbitrary closing of churches and arrest of clergy would simply alienate the population and delay cultural transformation. So the point of all of this is that as flamboyant as the word militant might be, 
um, in the title, Lady of the Militant Godless, Yaroslavsky's approach stressed subversion and re-education rather than violence. The violence had already been committed. So the Anti-Religious Committee sponsored the creation of uh, Bezbojnik uh, under Yaroslavsky's editorship. And it was in this magazine that Yaroslavsky called for the creation of the League of the Militant Godless in October 1923. So the activism of the 20s and 30s for the League mostly consisted of local League conferences and what they called shock brigades. These shock brigades were structured like a typical socialist economic plan. You have a time-constrained plan aimed at high numbers of production, uh, regardless of quality. Um, so essentially, they would take uh, Bezbochnik, the magazine, into rural areas and um, make a bunch of farmers scribble their name down to be subscribed to it. It meant virtually nothing, or they, or they would recruit local influencers to be a part of the League of the Militant Godless uh, in an official capacity, but um, did really nothing beyond this sort of shallow advertising and recruiting. Um, <clears throat> so for periods of two weeks, a month, or whatever arbitrary time frame the League imagined, they would send members out to distribute Bezbojnik and dramatically increase their subscription numbers. But like I said, the League's self-reported success was rarely substantive, yet even given their often pathetic performance, they could not fail. They were state-sponsored for what they represented, not for what they accomplished. And I, you know, I point out, or I have a little bullet here that says, sound familiar? Because it really, to me, does reflect the sort of economic policy of the time, over-reporting that whole dynamic, so. Uh, all right. So even in their ineffectiveness, uh, the League became a way for the party to create administrative positions where there were none, in big cities and small towns all across the Soviet Union. To a great extent, the history of the League was a history of the appointment, training, and support of a nationwide network of cadres. The League was basically an ornamental, bureaucratic organ of the party. They simply served as a reminder excuse me, to the Russian people of the party's omnipresence. What accounts for most of their direct activism is actually sporadic and hardly militant. The name itself is a reflection of what the League was in reality, a mirage meant to intimidate by its own accord, yet uh, one sees truly that it's empty at the core. So, the net result of this anti-religious committee, the League, Bezbojnik, Yaroslavsky, and everyone, was not ultimately in promoting atheism, but sustaining the emptiness created during the Civil War period. Uh, the Civil War created a vacuum, and the League was there to perform as if the vacuum didn't exist, convincing no one of anything. Um, the League's essence, even into the later Stalinist period, was a series of bureaucratic interactions internal to the Bolshevik polity, an ephemeral entity operating narrowly within existing bureaucratic boundaries. But it inflated the egos of members and reminded non-members of their station in life. So now we can move on to the fun section 
Um, really, this, this project was, was more of an art history project than anything else. It was sort of like, the, for me, it was the connection between a philosophy and the, the propaganda, and that was the most interesting part. Um, and my, my goal was ultimately to sort of nail down the modus operandi of propagandists. And, um, and I thought that, the, that doing a, sort of an artistic analysis might be the best way to do it. And so I hope we can have some fun with this. Um, the artistic tools of the anti-religious propagandists boil down to three main maxims. Humor, gore, and imitation. Each serve in their own way to lure the viewer into an image while generating negative feelings toward the subject of the piece. Each are inherently deconstructive. So first, we're, we're going to go with humor. Humor can be ex an exceptionally effective political tool. Um, to be an effective weapon, it must come from within the culture, or at least appear to. Um, it must use modes of entertainment, if not indigenous, at least familiar to that culture. Um, additionally, the kind of humor used must be sarcastic or of a caustic, exclusionary wit. So it's not lighthearted. It's always... Um, subversive. And we'll move to our first piece of propaganda. This is Bezbozhnik, that's what it says up there, which means godless. And um, so uh, this is, we'll call it figure one, depicts Muhammad riding a, uh, toting a top hat, oh sorry, toting a top hat and umbrella. I don't know if you see that, they're white in this picture, right in his left hand. Um, these are symbols of the capitalist West, actually. And he's donning, the, the, what it says right on top of his cap is atheist. So the style of the, the, this piece of, uh, I guess I'll call it art, um, is, intent, is not intended to mimic traditional Islamic art. Indeed, Islam prohibits the depiction of Muhammad in general, so this mimicry of the individual Muhammad is actually... Uh, poking fun at the religion itself, just by its very nature. Um, anyway, his position on top of the mule, that sort of sideways, askance position, um, implies a skirtishness, sneakiness, sort of typical Semitic trope. Um, uh, the angling downward of his face reinforce, reinforces the devilish quality of his face, the face itself. I don't know if you can see his eyes are painted blood red. And the eyebrows and the eyes are very close to each other in this sort of angry way. Um, so, yeah, the caricature of the face is demonic, particularly considering the red eyes, the large nose, and the thin, uh, wide smile and beard that blends with the eyebrows. Um, it's a silly, silly thing. Anyway, the, um, so, but then you have this, these bright colors, the pink and the yellow, um, and there's just like a cute silliness about the mule with the big eyes, and it just, this sort of tension uh, has a particular psychological effect that's uncomfortable and almost humorous. Um, so we'll move to the next, the next piece. So uh, figure two here, we'll call it, um, is titled Introducing the Day of Industrialization. Across the top, the caption reads, the five-year plan is a devastating 
practical program in the struggle against religion. And this title reflects the slogan of the League, which I should have mentioned. Um, the battle against religion is a battle for socialism. That was their actual slogan. So it, uh, it depicts these three guys here. These are what you would call the homo sovieticus, the ideal Soviet man. Strong, masculine, attractive. Um, they're friendly built and smiling, and you've got them against this, this highly orderly background, this heavy industry. Um, it's a strikingly modern scene. And they're dumping Jesus out via that wheelbarrow. And so if you just notice the contrast between Jesus and the Soviet men, Jesus' feet and hands are scrawny. They're almost baby-like, um, just skinny and uh, almost like you could say they were effeminate as well. Um, so the position of Christ upside down as he is dumped out stands out as a complete inversion of his typical position, arms outstretched on the cross. And also the composition of the piece is such that this, the central Soviet man is positioned under this small uh, smoke tower with his arms outstretched. So it's almost as if the, uh, the Soviet man is replacing Jesus as the savior of the world in that, in that very um, symbolic position. So both the implicit and explicit elements of this artwork <laughs> infer inversion and replacement. Jesus's face, I don't know if you can see it from afar, but it sort of uh, shows an expression of idiocy his, he's got wide eyes and his gaping mouth. There's, like I said, nothing particularly masculine or endearing about his character. He just looks silly. Okay, so uh, gore. We're, we're going to move on from humor to the second element, which is gore. Um, gore is the second powerful tool of the propagandists. In figure three, this one called Bless You, we have a sickly-looking man, um, and he is sneezing out Jesus who holds devil, the devil by its tail. And there's an Orthodox saint in there and uh, the Blessed Mother and Child as well. Um, another man stands behind him smiling uh, with a handkerchief reading symbols in faith. And so, yeah, the image of the man's sick and puffy face, complete with snot excreting from his nose, um, intermingling with the sacred, so yeah, this intermingling of the sacred with the foul um, is, is just, it's an example of, uh, of gore, of disgust, and it generates that feeling in the audience, I think. There's also sort of a humorous element to it, but, um, but I think the primary tool here is gore. Uh, so here's another example of gore. Um, figure four is titled, Accept This, Eat My Body, and portrays a mutilated, dismembered Christ being literally eaten by pale, demonic-like uh, Christians. This message makes uh, literal in the most disgusting way the ritual of communion and the dogma of transubstantiation. Um, it's, it's actually sort of an artistic reflection of the desacralizing behavior of the Soviets in general. This is a central part of the faith, just as the incorruptibility of the saints' bodies were. And so this is just a, 
an aesthetic interpretation of their very real behavior. Um, so yeah, the blue of Christ's skin communicates the sickliness, uh, and then the there uh, you probably can't see from afar, but the um, Christians have a these gaunt facial expressions and red encircling their eyes. Um, so it's, that one's kind of insane, but. <laughs> All right, so uh, the final method of deception that, um, that I brought up is imitation. And um, this, is, this is an interesting one. Um, for, for this, the artist rep replicates the traditional form of any given religious art and inserts a subtle derangement. So the artist apes the aesthetic quality of that which they intend to undermine, um, such that the image, image holds some weight, some integrity, uh, while delivering a frankly satanic message. Uh, so in figure five here, we see a, the depiction of classical Christian figures alongside an altar. In the front, there's nothing, this is a sort of, uh, they're depicted in the traditional form. There's nothing um, wrong with the images themselves. However, in the background, um, the clergy is ra uh, raising a curtain to reveal the fat capitalists stomping on the decimated bodies of the proletariat. So, I actually don't know if you would call this subtle, but um, <laughs> but you get my point. <laughs> Okay, so we're done with the Soviet propaganda for now. Um, I just wanted to include this because, um, because uh, Russian art is really something to behold, true Russian art, and um, it had been undermined for so long by such uh, people with such dark motivations. So um, this last piece of artwork um, is called The Ruining of the Temple on Easter Night by Ilya Glasunov, who actually died last summer. He's a famous Russian artist who uh, survived the Soviet regime. He lived from, I think, 1930 to... No, he couldn't have been that old. I'm not sure. <laughs> but anyway, he, he lived through the regime and everything, and I um, uh, was basically a monarchist, but very anti-Soviet, and... Um, I just wanted to use his work as a comparison. So the only thing modern about this is it's, uh, the, the political message sort of embedded in it. But otherwise, the, the characters are predicted true to form in a way that is totally unlike the, the, the propagandists' depictions, which were uh, lazy. Um, so here we see two, again, homo sovieticus, Storming a church where the patriarchs and the monarchists inter intermingled stand in solidarity. And um, so we've got all of these various elements of true, the true Russian culture, the pre-Soviet Rus Russian culture, um, that are standing, like I said, in solidarity. And the, the color and the way that he's depicted this is, is such that the light sort of shines on them. And... Um, Right, so the, they, they are holding these red prayer candles, and they are praying. There's color 
in the women's scarves, there's color and the patriarch's robes, and, um, and they sort of encircle Christ in a defensive position. And then the, um, the darkness that is sort of enclosing them um, is, the, is the Soviet force. And they, they bring violence and degeneracy. There's, there's a troll down there stealing a pig. And um, yeah, I just, this is a, a, a depiction of what the Soviets actually did to the culture storm in and I think what he's really trying to say here is that to lose one's faith is to, to lose beauty in a very real way. Um, right, so moving on. Um, the destruction of culture leads to depravity and depravity is a necessary precondition for the godless to enact their powerfully bad ideas on the world. From the Armenian Genocide to the current situation of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, it's important to understand how scientific materialist radicals, be they socialists or communists, must undermine faith to enhance their power. They must. It is baked in the cake of the ideology. Um, so yeah, just to wrap it up, um, I think that we experience art primordially whether that be music, literature, or the visual arts. And if we fail to make judgments and distinctions about art, we are a victim to its implicit messaging. Um, this is a recolorized version of a church that was destroyed, actually, in the country, in Russia. Uh, but it was a picture that was recolorized recently. This is pre-Soviet a pre-Soviet village. Um, yeah, so enemies of beauty are enemies of truth. And I will leave it there. Thank you. I, I'll open it up to questions if you guys have any. Sure. Um. There's a one point or one of the committees was the committee for the separation of church and state. Did mm. um, the Soviets use that terminology, which of course is you know, familiar here in the United States, as a mm -hmm. benign way of indicating uh, what they're trying to do? Yes, yes. I think that was a, that was a fairly typical and is still a fairly typical um, mode of operation for for these kind of governments. In fact, in the Chinese constitution now, um, freedom of religion is inscribed in their constitution. And there, there, was, there was a house hearing yesterday that I went to um, about the, the Uyghur situation, in which they are putting uh, the, an, an ethnic minority, Muslim minority in China into internment camps, um, uh, re-education camps. But, but, you know, it's, it's their justification is, actually under the, uh, the, the stipulations for freedom of religion. So, I mean, yes, it, it was a good point. Kelly? Uh, where did you find most of these images? Is there a source online or and are 
are there a lot more, or did you have to hunt pretty hard to find them? Um, they, they, there are great sources online, and um, I also think that the Library of Congress um, has some. Initially, uh, I went to Dr. Hodakiewicz, and he showed me um, a bunch of things, <laughs> and, and I just sort of went from there, from, from, from various places, wherever I could find find ones that I really thought were interesting. Um, there were many more, though, and I encourage everyone to go take a look for yourself. Yes. So here we're really seeing a lot of like the efforts um, by a state to have like push for separation of church and state, and to use art to really attack like faces of religion. But do you think maybe not in these same sort of societies, but even like in the U.S., do you think there's a possible role that even our own government could play to try and uh, do the opposite of even like working through art to help defend these sorts of Right, and not to just say that everyone has to follow this, uh, like follow into religion to live the best way they can, but to really just defend it as a thing on its own. Yeah. Well, I um I think uh, the founders did something really beautiful uh, when they uh, inscribed freedom into into the Declaration of the Constitution, sort of let things go. It's a republic if you can keep it, right? And I think it's incumbent upon uh, the citizens as individuals and as individual believers to stand up for their faith. Does that answer your question a little bit? I don't, I don't think the government necessarily, well, not our government at least, can, can have a, anything close to a role like this. But, um, yeah. Any else? Anybody else? Yes. I just wanted to ask where I could read your paper. Is it, is it published somewhere? Or? Um, I have not submitted it for publishing, and I'm not exactly sure how, how I could do that. Um, maybe I'll uh, ask Dr. C, <laughs> see if he has some suggestions. But I'll, I'll print it out and give it to you at work. Okay. <laughs> yes? I, I think the chronology was, was an anti-religious committee then published a newspaper which then called for formation of this league. Yes. Um, so who was the publisher of the, was it this committee this, that published this magazine and, and did it last as long as the league or did it? Oh yes, that's a good question. Um, it was, it, the, the, the responsibility was pretty much in the editor's hands but the, the um, it sort of became unclear. So the the uh, the anti-religious committee started the newspaper, and um, it lasted about the same time as the league. But all um, all activities were shut down in 1941 because of the Nazi issue. So um, yeah, I think there actually might be some like modern iterations of Bezbojnik, like independently uh, created things. But there's nothing state-sanctioned. But yeah, they were sort of sanctioned, they were both sanctioned by the anti-religious committee, one of the other, and then it kind of melded together and they died together. So the committee kind of disappeared in World War II also? Um, you know, I should... Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about the history of committee or what, the committee itself, what happened with that. They, I'm not sure. Yes. Um, the person you're saying was the sort of 
head of the committee. Um, Yaroslavsky. Yeah, yeah. Why? Why? Uh, does that name mean anything? Um, no, actually, he was um, a Jewish man um, who changed his name, but he was yeah. born uh, Mine Israelovich Gubelman. So I don't. Well, I'm not sure what it means. Had, like uh, Stalin, by having told stench or steel, and was it about oh. you know uh, for that um, connotation? I was just was curious whether there was oh. that, that name meant anything. I don't know. Do you know Eric? Uh, I mean, it's a like literal translation. Yaroslavsky, uh, Slav in Russian means pride, and Yar means brightness. So if you combine those two, I'm not sure if that was the motive behind it, but the first part of the last name uh, actually means something in Russian. I'm not sure if that was the motive behind his changing his name. But uh, Slava and Yar, Yar means bright, and Slav means pride. Wow. All right. Anyone else? Okay, thank you so much for your time and coming in the rain. I know it's sort of a grim day, but I really appreciate your attention. Thank you.